What's up, everyone, and welcome to episode two of the Draft Class Dropouts podcast, your one-stop shop for all things NBA draft. I am one of your hosts, Jackson, joined today by my lovely co-hosts, Garrett and Tim. Guys, how are you guys doing today? Good, man. I'm, I'm sorry that college basketball is over. I'm already missing it a little bit, but uh, just got through watching my final college basketball games and uh, getting excited for the draft now, getting excited for NBA playoffs. Same here. I'm doing pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, just catching up on college film and uh, especially the tournament because I missed quite a bit of that, but good otherwise. That's good to hear. Uh, you know, we're recording this. This is our first podcast episode that's uh, after the NCAA season. The tournament is over. It is officially full-on scouting season. Uh, soon we're going to get into, you know, measurables, the combine and all of that, you know, team interviews, team workouts. So we have a bunch to talk about today, you know. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to pass it off to Tim. Tim, we want to talk about pre-drafting. That's something you've been uh, talking to us about lately. I'm curious to hear your thoughts about it. I know it's something that you've been wanting to talk about. So I'm just going to pass it off to you. You're the captain of the ship. Yep. So pre-drafting is a really interesting concept, which seems to get talked about more and more often uh, with every passing year. And uh, in what a lot of people think is a weaker draft class, there are plenty of pre-draft options that I think we're going to talk about today. Uh, But before we get into those prospects, I think it would be cool to have a conversation about uh, how we each define pre-drafting because pretty undefinable uh, at the moment with people kind of considering it different uh, and it's a bit of a gray area uh, in what it means. So Garrett, what would you consider a pre-draft prospect to be or the, the process in general? Um. You know, I, I think my like my my view on what pre-drafting is is clouded a little bit by being somebody who like converses about the draft mainly on Twitter versus a, a team, uh, because a lot of times we see players that uh, prospects that teams have already kind of pushed off as being like, for example, this year like a 2023 prospect. I'm just assuming they're going to be in that draft. I don't have to worry about them right now, but they're on my radar and I'll continue to watch them. But as somebody in the community where we're just watching the prospects and ranking them year in year out. Uh, there's guys that we see as a future prospect, but we're already ready to put on our boards now and would be willing to invest a pick in now if they entered the draft. So when I think about pre-drafting, I think about guys that uh, maybe haven't put in, put the production, put the uh, uh, quantifiable success in, in the college level or elsewhere where teams are comfortable investing high, high draft picks in yet. But if you're less risk averse, um then you're more then you could get a steal by drafting a guy a year before he really peaks in his draft value um that's basically my idea of pre-drafting but i'm curious what you all would say yeah have you got any thoughts on that jackson i would consider pre-drafting to be you know a bit of what garrett said i would say that the substance is there you know the stuff that makes a prospect is there you know you you like what you see you know but the but the production isn't there yet, and maybe the production's a year off or something. So you're going to go ahead and you're going to say, "Hey, let's promise this guy, let's get him, you know, a year before he comes out of the draft, you know, get him lower, get him on a cheaper contract. You know, he gets a draft promise. We get a guy who's, you know, he may be a lottery pick next year. We're going to get him at the end of the first. So that's kind of how I view pre-drafting. Yeah, I view it in a very similar way, and it's all about maximizing value. And one of the ways that you can maximize value is by taking a risk or a, a swing on one of these guys who hasn't quite produced uh, up to par and uh, thus has lower value. And you can get those in the late first where 
uh, you can take a swing on them and then hope that they produce value that uh, outsells uh, their current projected range. And uh, yeah, I think at the end of the day, those pre-draft guys that we see, like in the past few years, we've had guys like uh, Josh Primo, JC Thor, uh, Zaya Smith, Anthony Simons, Chumurakiki, Jordan Poole, those kind of guys. Uh, if they return to college for another season, uh, there's a chance that they could have gone a lot higher. Uh, we saw someone like Jaden Ivey, he's projected to go in the 20s, returns for his uh, sophomore season, and he's projected top five pick. And I think it's about catching those guys before they uh, increase their draft stock rapidly. Yeah, I think uh, JT Thor is a great example of a pre-draft prospect where he wasn't really on draft radar, was going into the cycle, and was only really coming onto the uh, draft radar towards the end of that cycle as people really got into the film. When they were watching Auburn, they were watching it for Sharif Cooper, some for Alan Flanagan. JT Thor was kind of forgotten for a lot of that cycle, but uh, when he got to... When people really started pouring in and seeing the flashes defensively, seeing the the raw athleticism, seeing that he might have a pull-up. Um, and then he gets to the combine and blows the numbers out of the water. Uh, you know, Charlotte got him in the early second, hoping that next this year he would have been a first-round pick and that they got uh, that quick value. But we had a kind of a debate uh, before this podcast about whether or not Josh Primo is a pre-draft prospect. I think that we would all agree that when we were ranking before the draft day actually happened, that we all considered him a pre-draft prospect, where he was, you know, the youngest player in the draft. Um, it was clear that some of the tools hadn't come together yet, at least on the tape. Um, you know, he was a great jump shooter. Occasionally he would go on the bounce, but a lot of times when he was on the bounce, it was a little shaky. The defense is good, but not great. And you kind of look at that and go, okay, this guy might be a year away from being really something. But then the Spurs take him at, what was it? 12, 11? 12, like, yeah. Um, 12. And shocked everyone. And at that point, once you've invested a lottery pick into into Josh Primo, it are the Spurs in that scenario pre-drafting? What would you What would you say? I'm personally go absolutely not. I mean, I feel like once you uh once you invest a lottery pick into a guy, you're you, I mean you're not trying to you know maximize the value. You're saying, all right, you're the guy we're gonna take. You're the guy that you know we've scouted, we've seen the substance, and we think the production's there. So I, I think at that point, that wasn't pre-drafting. I uh, I don't know. I wasn't really a Primo fan. I'll be the first to say that. I think that was just more of a case of a team falling in love with someone, and they're like, we're going to get you by all means necessary. And I mean, in really any sport, but especially the NBA, if you have a guy, sometimes you just got to take him. And, and you, you know, draft stock, you know, be damned. You just got to get that guy because, you know, at the end of the day, if, if, you, if you and your scouts have, de- have deduced that he's him, then you got to do it. But I wouldn't say he was a pre-draft at that point. I mean, once you take the lottery pick, you're a... Uh, you you the ship is yours you're you're on you're on the hook yeah i agree there i don't think uh i don't think it was pre-drafting to take him at 12 maybe if he'd gone something like 22nd 10 spots lower then you could consider it pre-drafting but it's just back to that whole idea of of maximizing value uh, if josh if josh primo returned for his uh for another season uh, i I don't know how likely it would have been that he would have had a jump like Jaden Ivey. I don't know if there was uh, the room for that sort of growth. And uh, I don't think his ceiling, even if a lot of things did end up going right in terms of development between between seasons, would have uh, warranted uh, that sort of upside. So taking him at 12, which I feel like maybe if he returns for his, uh, for another season he'd go in that kind of late lotto mid first there's there's the chance that he would warrant that 
if you're taking him at that point uh, already as like a, I just, I just feel like it's too much of a risk to be considered pre-drafting. Do you think pre-drafting applies the same to international prospects? Uh, I, I think a little bit, you know, the idea of a stash in the second round uh, is kind of the idea that uh, I don't have to bring this player in right away. So there's less uh, risk involved and maybe I have roster constraints at the moment and I would rather have this guy stay in Europe for a couple more years. Is that really the same thing as pre-drafting a U.S. prospect who's going to be on your roster next year? Would you say that, for example, like uh, I, I think of like a Pope Kuchevsky, um, who, well, no, he wasn't a stash. Let's think. Um, well, like Ibu Baji this year, or or whenever he decides to enter the draft, where right now he would he should not be on an NBA court. Uh, he's 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 got incredible measurables, but the the basketball knowledge is still growing. I think it. You were going to say something? Yeah, I think the internationals, is, it's a bit different because uh, they don't necessarily uh, come back to a team which has lost assets like uh, a lot of college players experience where they then have the room to produce more and rapidly increase their draft stock, uh, which I feel is very fundamental to what pre-drafting is, is uh, catching players before their draft stock uh, explodes. And... Yeah, I feel like that's a lot less common for international players, so doesn't apply as well. But I think at, at the end of the day, if if you use someone like Baji, for example, uh, who isn't projected to be picked, if you're taking him, like say, like in the fifties, early fifties, uh, you're making a bet that he's going to, uh, you know, be worth more than that. Uh, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I think yeah, you really have to figure out how you define pre-drafting to see how that fits in. I'm still trying to think of that, but Pokashevsky was a really interesting point because uh, clearly there was uh, a lot of development that uh, needed to be done, especially compared to how like draft Twitter is ranking him. And I feel like that's the difference between uh, what we do on Twitter and what front offices do. Whereas, you know, we're okay with taking that risk. Our job's not on the line. We can do it all theoretically and then, Know, move on to the next class whereas uh for nba teams it's a multi-million dollar investment that it matters and uh it, yeah, it, it makes pre-drafting a lot more difficult yeah i think one of the things that differentiates when you stash someone versus a pre-draft of a u.s prospect is not only the fact that you aren't going to pay them right away or in some cases ever at all if you decide to never bring them over um it, it is that the the risk the risk aversion idea that we were talking about, where if you if you invest a high draft pick and someone who's raw and and needs a lot more development, uh, you're kind of and it, um, you draft them over where other people would take them at that moment at that current skill level. Now showing that you have a little less risk aversion in, in drafting that player because of a personal belief in their development uh, versus what they're producing now. But when you stash a guy, that risk aversion that that like less risk averse behavior is kind of different i mean a lot of times teams that are drafting guys in the second see that second round pick is not having a ton of value second round picks like after the first 10 or so picks generally don't have a high hit rate and if you don't if your guys are gone off the board it makes sense to maybe uh take a take a more of a home run shot 
Whereas, uh, you know, like a JT Thor in the 30, like he went like 39, I think, or something like that. And he got, he got a guaranteed contract. You're going to be paying JT Thor for the next few years. Yeah. And you are, it's more of a actual commitment to that risk than, than an international. Yeah. Yeah. And we see a lot of that in the late second round with, uh, internationals some who weren't even considered uh by a lot of uh, fans of the draft um plenty of those guys who even myself i i hadn't heard of them when they got picked i think there was a clippers pick a few years back uh david like Michener or something i don't know if i'm pronouncing it right but i'd never heard of him and he went in the 30s uh, and he has uh never come over so yeah, it's crazy. Sometimes you see teams like kind of. I think it's almost like a joke between teams when they trade some of these stash rights to players who are already in their forties and have long retired in Europe. Uh, yeah, so the, some of these guys just never come over that. and never even attempt to. So, if, if there's any risk at all, it might just be the idea that the guy might want to just stay in Europe. Sometimes. I, I want to talk on that note for a second. I just want to say. Don't be surprised when Alpha Kava comes over, you know, joins the Hawks in a few years here. We hey, still got I his draft to, rights. I used to love him. You you know he got you know he got like banned from like the French league for like match fixing or like something like I don't know. Anyways, hey, really? Yeah, no, he actually did. You could look it up. It's a real thing. Um you know, there's a lot of you know, this draft, you know, it's a, you know, it's a bit more less, you know, structured than usual. There's a lot less of a consensus. You know, there's a bunch of guys that I would consider pre draft prospects, so that's what I'm gonna segue into next. You know, the first one I'm going to talk about is Patrick Baldwin Jr. I mean, come on. We got to talk about him first. A guy who, you know, highly touted coming out of high school, goes to a bit of a smaller school. You know, his father was coaching there. And it's like, okay, well, there's some substance there, but the production was just really never there. Yeah, he had a rough year this year, and it's a little bit difficult from the outside looking in when you don't have the inside intel to know exactly what went wrong with the with the Patrick Baldwin this year. Uh, you can easily tell from just watching the games what went wrong with Milwaukee this year. There was just not enough talent on that roster. It is a Horizon League school. That's not a strong conference, uh, just, just being honest. Uh, usually there's one or two good teams that come out of that league each year, and Milwaukee wasn't one of them this year. Um, a lack, lack of really like high-level guard play to get Patrick Baldwin open without Baldwin kind of having to create for himself. Um, Baldwin was clearly dealing with ankle issues throughout the year. How much explosion that took away was not clear. Obviously, he was w- much more successful in the high school circuit, uh, got a reputation for his jump shooting, and the, the shot just wasn't falling this year. Um, so, so a lot of what made him an interesting prospect did not work this season. But it's impossible to kind of throw away all his priors. And um, it's going to be interesting to see what he does. Uh, maybe you all could talk a little bit more about what you saw in Patrick Bowen's game before we kind of talk about his situation. Yeah, so with Patrick Baldwin Jr., it's pretty much a case of a, a specialist uh, succeeding as a specialist. Uh, entering the season, a projected top five guy. And a lot of us were wanting to see some of that self-creation uh, come to fruition and it, it never really did he's he's a difficult shot maker but i don't think he's a difficult shot creator or even a shot creator at all uh so in terms of him as like a pre-draft prospect 
And uh, it feels weird to throw the pre-draft label on him. But we were talking about this earlier, where it's more of a case of him having a down year, whereas some of these other pre-draft guys, it's due to like accelerated uh, development. Someone like JT Thor, who you mentioned earlier. Uh, Patrick Baldwin Jr., much the opposite. And uh, I think that really expands and broadens uh, our idea of what a pre-draft prospect is. Yeah, I would say the other thing is that uh, it wasn't just that he was maybe lacking some explosion or, or we had some question marks about what was going going maybe wrong in that situation. It was also that there were some elements of his game that kind of didn't seem fully developed, particularly his defense. Um, you know, you'd occasionally see him make a really nice read defensively off ball. And then other times you'd see him completely lose track of the play and can be completely out of it. You also even saw, like, I don't usually like to read into players, like, body language or anything like that. But, you know, in the games that where scouts were actually attending, like, in large numbers, they were Milwaukee was getting blown out because, frankly, they're not at the level of some of these teams that they played, like uh, Colorado, like um, Florida. And uh, they were getting completely blown out, and he just checked out at the end of that game, despite you know, all the scouts being in attendance still wanting to see more. Um, so it, it's a bit difficult to really like at, from the outside look and make any judgment on that. I would much prefer to take his play and, and, and his priors and what we know about him as a specialist. And if I was a team, bring him into workouts and see if the shooting is actually back to where it was, or if there's something else going on that they need to uh, figure out and maybe give him advice to go back to school and, get healthy when i actually want to ask y'all a question this is very quick on patrick baldwin this isn't like an assessment of his game uh something we did last episode was like i'm putting you as the gm how what's the highest you're taking patrick baldwin i mean obviously the measurables are there obviously the priors are there but like the production wasn't there this season there's no way to you know skip around that bush you know you can you can make the excuses you can you know kind of come up with the conspiracy theories but at the end of the day the production wasn't there and i mean but you do have the priors, you do have the measurables. And in the NBA, especially today's NBA, you can find a 6'10 guy with shooting potential. You can find him somewhere to play. So I'm just, you know, obviously that makes him intriguing. But, you know, where would you, what's the highest you guys would take him? Um, it's an interesting question because um, if I were to say my, myself where I would take him, I would still take him at the end of the first uh, maybe towards the mid first, uh, but it would have to be pretty team specific need at that point in the draft. And on top of that, uh, I, I would just like to recognize that I don't, I'm not a very big fan of the end of the first in this draft. So th there reaches a point where I think the talent uh, takes a bit of a step down and you're looking more at role players versus maybe guys who might project as having a decent chance of being a starter. And so when I'm at that point, I'm starting to look at guys like Patrick Baldwin, who prior to this year, we thought maybe had starter potential and didn't show it and saying, OK, well, do, do I want to take a shot on this and kind of expect him to return to form? Um, there's a few names around him that I that will touch on that uh, kind of fit in that same category. Then where do you have him? Yeah, so. I uh, uploaded a big board today and he's sitting at 34, but he's in a tier that extends up to uh, late first. And 
Yeah, very similar to you. I think a lot of it would come down to what sort of team I am and uh, what I can accommodate for. And yeah, so I, I don't think it's kind of fair to put a number on it. Cause, uh, a lot of those teams in late first, some of them it's going to work, some of them it's not. And uh, But the general range I'd be thinking is kind of late first, early second, like 25 to 35. If I have to put a number on it. When you think about like uh, the the advice that he would get, uh, if you were like an NBA team and he was in the pre-draft process, uh, would your advice be different than maybe where you would take him? Like in terms of like whether or not he should go back or not, because you look at like uh, this isn't really a comparison of play style or anything, but uh, BJ Boston last year entered the draft and signed with an agent pretty quickly. Uh, in the process and uh, was very committed to the draft the whole way through and he had a very poor year and despite all the priors still went at the very end of the second uh, you know part of the reason that you can't compare some of these situations one-to-one is that we don't know some of the stuff that was going on with BJ Boston beyond uh, just his play so we don't know if there were other reasons uh, we can only say that you know i think most of us in this group had him either in the late first or early second bj boston and he fell that far and now we're talking about kind of patrick baldwin jr being the same range and we wonder where he might go uh so i don't know i think my advice would maybe be different than where i would actually say that he should he would be on my board you know if it when when you have a different board than every other person uh and you have a guy in the late 20s a lot of times guys like that are still available in your second round, or you have somebody above them that nobody else has that high, and you end up taking a guy higher, and then everybody takes their guy, and everybody takes their guy, and then suddenly Patrick Baldwin is still there in the 40s, um, which he probably would not consider a positive outcome. So, yeah, I think it's difficult for him uh, to decide what he should do. He should certainly not go back to Milwaukee. Yeah, I think that's something we can all agree on. Uh, for someone like him, comparing him with uh, the situation with uh, Brandon Boston, like the difference between them is I feel Patrick Baldwin has a more obvious role at the next level uh, as a shooting specialist. And I think that will come down to teams philosophies, whether they do want to like prioritize someone with uh, the potential for an elite skill or a standout skill. Not that he's necessarily elite at shooting, but uh it is definitely uh, a clear strength there compared to Brandon Boston, who kind of disappointed across the board. And uh, yeah, in terms of shooting specialists, we saw, uh, especially tall shooting specialists, uh, we saw like Sam Hauser go undrafted, uh, Matt Hurt go undrafted. And uh, Patrick Baldwin's a bit different though, uh, due to his priors and also being a bit younger. Uh, but yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he uh, had a dramatic fall on uh, draft night. And yeah, I think I think the advice I'd give him is to have a hard think about where he would want to go if he's uh, returning, and that shouldn't be Milwaukee. And also uh, how willing he is to bet on himself, because if he returns and say, he's still shooting under 40% from the field, and uh, the production isn't that much better, I think... All that's going to do is substantiate teams' uh, idea of where he should go, and he would just get kind of stuck in that mid-second, which I don't know if that's somewhere you want to be stuck with uh, the way that two-way contracts work these days. 
Okay, let me ask you this. Tim, you said something. You were like, I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, like Patrick Baldwin fall to like the, to like the late second. Would you guys be surprised if a team saw him in the lottery, like a late lottery pick, and you know, throwing them back? I'm not trying to compare the players, but the measurables and the uh, the priors are there. Somebody like Michael Porter Jr., but obviously there was injury history there. I mean, you don't have that with Patrick Baldwin, obviously, but you know, would you guys be surprised because you know that that length and that you know that shooting ability? I mean, come on, that's that's what the NBA is. You know, every GM is going to be looking for. I mean, would you be surprised if a GM at like 14, 13 was like, hey, let's take this guy, let's see what we can do with him? I think the biggest difference is that Michael Porter Jr., to everyone who wasn't aware of the seriousness of his injury uh, circumstances, had him in kind of like the top seven at minimum, I would say, on their boards come like leading up to the draft. And then the rumor came that the story came out that we were, that he's probably going to fall to his injury like around draft night. And then he had that fall down to the late lottery. I think that he's like a, a case, I think, of somebody who's a much higher level athlete uh um, he's i think he's even taller and longer than patrick baldwin jr and the shot making was already crazy uh at, at in his senior year of high school and had that reputation coming in i think patrick baldwin jr is more less of like known as a crazy shot maker and more known as a guy who profiles as someone who can get his shot at the next level uh with development um so kind of that that complicates that comparison to me and i think patrick baldwin's just simply kind of not as good as Michael Porter Jr. across the board, really. Yeah, and I, I'd like to add in that their priors, both both of their priors were pretty good in high school, but I still feel like there was a significant uh, difference between them, where Patrick Baldwin Jr. was kind of like a, a top five guy in his class in what some considered a weaker class, and uh, Michael Porter Jr. was uh, before before the injury, before before college, uh, was considered on par with Luka Doncic and DeAndre Ayton. So uh, I feel like there's a the big difference there. But I think a, a counter question to think about would be, uh, would you be more surprised with Patrick Baldwin going in the lottery or Patrick Baldwin like falling below 45? Yeah, I would certainly say that it would be more surprising to go lottery at this point. Um just I, I look at the names that are currently already kind of being cemented into that range and it just seems like there's too many names to keep uh, for Patrick Baldwin to sneak in uh, if if we hear news that he's been fully healthy and is suddenly looking revitalized then I'll kind of uh, revise that maybe but for now I, I think it would be more surprising to see him higher than low all right, I think I think that's enough about Patrick Baldwin. You know, we we might start going too far into the uh, comparing him to other players. Uh, the first, the next player I want to talk about. You know, we're we're talking about you know pre-drafting guys is Terquavion Smith. Uh, he's been getting a lot of love on draft Twitter recently. You know, in the past few months, but especially lately. So, uh, I'm gonna kind of have to defer to you guys because I'm gonna be honest. I I have not watched much, and you know, I don't want to I don't want to give an unprofessional opinion. So I'm gonna pass it off to you guys for this one. Yeah, I just watched uh, Turquavion in the last couple of days, actually, so it's a good timing because uh, he's my the most recent prospect on my mind. Um, yeah, Rafael Barlow, shout out to him. He he just announced that he's going to have Turquavion in his lottery. So when we talk about pre-drafting, if, if teams view it the same way, then he would probably lose that pre-draft label for, for most of us. But I still think most people have him in like the late first, maybe early second range uh as they get acquainted to it i we, we were talking before the podcast a little bit about the comparison to anthony simons not just in terms of like if you looked at, at them very surface level profile wise 
you would maybe draw comparisons, even though there's quite a bit of difference in the way that they play, uh, in that they're both very, came into the league very undersized in terms of weight. Uh, coming to the league, they're both like tough shot makers, and they both are not afraid to just launch it from three at will. Um, and yeah, just very defined by their skinniness. Um, but th- I think the interesting thing is about because NC State struggled so badly this year, uh, the level of awareness of a lot of people in the draft community is about the same for Turquavion as as an Anthony Simons in high school. That people kind of expected him to be in the 2023 draft and now he's in the 2022 draft potentially if he's being talked about in the first round uh i'm really excited about him i think that he should stay in the draft having watched him the tough shot making is just incredible he he shot threes at this incredible rate per, per 100 possessions i think it's about 15 uh which is very high as for a freshman let alone a freshman who's also shooting them efficiently uh, I don't think he has to have like a the, his base doesn't have to be set for him to make threes at a high level, which is crazy. The, the tough shot making is is really interesting, and and his mind for the game on the tape just really stood out. I I, I thought of him as a chucker honestly when I wasn't watching for him when I first watched early in the year when Darion Sebron was kind of putting up tons of stats and you had to watch him. I was watch I just saw Turquavion on the side and thought that he was kind of a chucker because I'd always see him just launch these crazy threes and that was really the only time i was paying attention to him and when i went back and watched the tape it was clear that the team needed him to take those shots and that was partially why he was taking so many tough shots and on top of that when he was when i was actually paying attention to his kind of like floor awareness it was really high level Uh, his passing reads are excellent and his defense for how skinny he is is pretty great he fills the space well and makes makes it so that uh some of the disadvantage he would find from his weight trying to guard guys in the uh within the the uh two point line uh you know he actually stands his ground very well um so i i'm really interested in him i have a, him as a first round prospect I actually as long as you don't consider jay Ivy to be a point guard uh i think i might have him as my number one point guard in this class uh but i'm cur- pure point guard but i'm curious what you all think i don't i wouldn't agree that he's a pure point guard but um I think that's an interesting point about uh, Anthony Simons, and I feel like the development of Anthony Simons is kind of exactly what you want to put upon uh, Turk. And uh, yeah, I I think an interesting point to talk about him would be uh, his finishing. Uh, what did he shoot from two? About 43, 44%. So um, do you have any concerns over his ability to pressure the rim and how much do you think he can uh, realistically improve in that area oh i'm definitely concerned about it yeah uh when i say that by the way when i'm saying that he's a one of my highest rated point guards in the class this is a very weak point guard class and that kind of hasn't fallen like the late first round range for me um i i would say that his finishing at the rim is a concern he has really crafty finishes and it makes me uh and i don't really i'm not really concerned about his processing or reactivity to the defenders when he goes to the rim but the the weight is the obvious issue, and and I also don't know that he always gets the same vert on his on his finishes every possession. I I noticed that at times he can, I, I saw him sky for a dunk in in a in a Virginia game uh, over a over a big uh, that was very impressive. But then I watch other games where it seems like he doesn't get even up to the rim, and he just gets swatted away by centers who are kind of plotting in the paint. I I do think that that'll. It, 
be a, the first area of improvement is for him to get stronger and and to try and learn to finish through contact. Um, but I don't I don't know that I necessarily have a ton of concern about the percentage right now. Uh, beyond just kind of like, okay, well, he's not good right now. He but... be a... uh, in terms of his development, do you think he would be like a kind of like what we call a domestic uh, stash and draft or draft and stash player? Yeah, I think if he got drafted in like the late first, then I would definitely consider it versus people who are saying he's lottery right now. If he got drafted in the late first, I would consider him definitely a pre-draft because I, I just don't think he's going to be ready right away to play meaningful minutes. That doesn't mean that he won't play minutes or his rookie year, but if he, he gets drafted to a team that's uh, looking to win, I don't think he's going to find a lot of meaningful minutes on the floor right away. Um, but I could see him definitely getting minutes by the end of his rookie contract. You know what? I think that's very, you know, I appreciate all this discussion just because I feel like I learned something. You know, I've admittedly not watched this guy. So, you know, it's nice to hear some insight. It's nice to hear from you guys on that. But, uh, you know, what? there's some more players we uh, we want to talk about today. So we're going to move on to our next one, uh, which is, you know, QK or Tim, you're going to be a big fan of this one. Max Christie. Uh, I know you've been waiting for this one. Uh, I think Garrett and I are both uh, big fans of Max Christie. Uh, where do you have him ranked at the moment, Garrett? Uh, gosh, it's it's tough because I think if I was a team, I'd draft him later than I have him on my board. To be quite honest, but I I have him just outside yeah. the lottery in terms of my actual interest in him as a long term prospect. Yeah, I I posted my big board uh, this morning, and I haven't replied to. Uh, all the questions people have posted. One of the big ones was uh, Max Christie over Jaden Hardy. Uh, haven't seen that one before. And uh, yeah, I, I described them as interchangeable, but I kind of agree that I don't think I would have the, the confidence to take Max Christie at 15 uh, if I'm an NBA team. And I think that makes him a really interesting guy as a pre-draft prospect because realistic uh projected draft range is probably uh in the in the 20s and i think with max christie uh you don't want to have like a, a josh primo situation where you're taking him uh higher than that or like absurdly higher than that so if you're taking max christie at like 11 or so um i don't think that is necessarily pre-drafting but if you can nab him in the 20s and then uh if, use him as uh this developmental piece and then eventually a kind of i guess like late lottery value uh it's a pre-draft yeah it's it's very possible that max christie has changed his mind since what we've heard in the past but it's been a very loud rumor that he doesn't want to go um any later than just outside the lottery if he were to enter the draft and if so he's totally comfortable going back to michigan state um, so when we talk about pre-drafting for him, it's a bit difficult because I think in a pre-draft range where you're probably getting uh, a long-term investment in a guy who would probably go much earlier in 2023, well, it's tough to say that now <laughs> looking at that class, but a guy who aspires to be taken earlier in the next draft, um, it's possible he won't even stay in this draft if you try to pre-draft him. So that's kind of tough. But if I were to take him late first, definitely a pre-draft guy. Uh, the main thing that uh, it's difficult with the Max Christie sell. If you're trying to sell him to people who aren't big Max Christie fans, is the numbers. Um, he's billed as being kind of like this 3 and D sniper. 
Um, but much more than just a 3 and D guy. He's got good passing instincts and good passing ability. Um, he can uh, attack off the bounce. His handle is very interesting. It's I don't know that it's a handle that allows him to go downhill very well, but uh, he's almost got a little bit of that Halliburton side dribble that he loves to do to kind of just like completely change change sides of the court. Uh, and and I, I'm just very interested in the, in the tools, but the, the numbers don't match up with what the cell is on roll right now. Uh, I think the defense is there, but the three-point numbers were really poor for a guy who's billed as a three-point shooter. And his two-point numbers, are, especially at the rim, are just really weak. Uh, just being very honest, they're not good. Um, and I think it goes a little bit to what we were talking about, where he's not really able to go very downhill right now and attack the rim. Uh, it might be a strength issue. It might be a handle issue. We don't know. But that I think that's giving people some hesitation, and that's partly why ESPN, I think, has him in the, in the second round right now. Yeah, with Max Christie, uh, for me, because he's one of the guys I watched a, a bit more of uh, in high school, and uh, I was really impressed with the, the shooting uh, coming into the season. I thought he was going to be a top five shooting prospect. And uh, he was a really silky shot creator as well, uh, one dribble pull-ups and uh, just kind of getting to his spots in the mid-range. And uh, on top of that, I feel like uh, we've discussed this before in group chats and whatever, but uh, he's, he's a great mover, uh, really capable athlete and a viable one at that. And then uh, on top of that, I think he's uh, a really intelligent off-ball player. And uh, that kind of combination of uh, skills uh, is what plays into what his role should be. But a lot of it for him is uh, just making sure it all comes together. And uh, that's the sort of risk that we've been discussing. And I guess that's why, even though we have him ranked uh, just outside the lottery, we're not necessarily confident in taking him outside the lottery. Yeah, I don't know where I would actually take him if I was a team, especially when, you know, this year is pretty highlighted by a lot of guys who are not freshmen, you know, second year, third year players who are now producing at a high level. It's going to be very, if I was a GM, it would be very difficult to justify to my, to the owners why I passed up on a guy who's actively producing uh, over a freshman who may, if, if he were to not fit into the NBA right away and kind of not meet expectations uh, that you're setting and maybe you're pre-draft meetings so for me i i think i'd probably take him later i don't know i haven't really thought about it about where but yeah it's more my my ranking is more of a statement of my belief in his development than a statement of where i would take him look the next player i want to talk about is none other than uh the draft twitter darling uh there if you think about the word pre-draft and you think about this class he probably comes to mind john butler I mean, a lot of people like him. There's a lot of reasons to like him. I mean, he's like seven feet tall. He can shoot. But I want to know where you guys are at with him because there's a lot of people who are like, stay in this class, let a team get you, and let them start working with you on your game. But then people are like, yo, this guy's too raw. He needs to go back to college. So I'm interested in where you guys are at on John Butler. Yeah, I he's one of the, the most unique prospects in this class, for sure. Um, coming into the year, he didn't really have any draft attention beyond just people being aware that he was uh, going to be on Florida State this year. Uh, but very quickly, you just see him, the moment you see on the court, you go, that guy has special tools that, but man, he hasn't used, he hasn't f- like filled them out yet. Uh, ESPN has him listed at seven foot one, which is probably too high. I, he might be a true seven footer, but 
when I say a true seven footer, he's a true seven footer who's I, I think about 160, 180 pounds. Uh, he he's just incredibly skinny and just not ready at all to play on an NBA court. I, I can almost assure you that in his first year, he would barely see the floor. And uh, the main sell is that he has kind of crazy skill set for a guy of his size, his height. Uh, he can hit the three at a high level. He has an extremely high release point, not just from his height, but also his form. That would make his three really difficult to defend, um, even at the NBA level. Um, so right away, he has that skill set that's immediately translatable. The other thing that's extremely interesting about him is that uh, he's shown to be a great perimeter defender. And when I say great perimeter defender, I don't just mean for his height. I mean uh, like the amount of ground that he covers with his length and the ability to actually stay with some wings off the bounce is incredible. Um, I, I've seen a couple games where he stands out. The entire strategy of Florida State was to have him meet like at the 25-foot line and just spread his arms as far as possible and contain and just prevent the the dribble from moving around the court rather than actually like trying to take the guy on the bounce and just where he is right now is just not even the beginning of where he i think he's going to be i think he's exactly the definition of a pre-draft prospect with this guy if he adds any more skill or develops any more of his game quickly He's just immediately going to skyrocket off upwards of because of the uh, potential from his intent, like uh, from his measurables and uh, what he already brings to the table. I think anything that he adds to his game is just going to increase the stock exponentially, and he would be a guy I would try to draft this year as soon as possible. As you said, he's got a really obscure combination of uh, skills and mobility and size and. Uh, rather kind of extremes uh within that area especially uh considering his weight and uh yeah it makes a really confusing prospect to evaluate uh simultaneously exciting yet full of risk and uh yeah i've seen him ranked uh, everywhere from unranked uh to lottery and personally i have him in the 20s early 20s and uh he's just been rising uh, ever since i first watched him and uh, I think he he's a really interesting case as a pre-draft prospect because he, he best displays uh, what a pre-draft guy uh, would be. I'm curious to see what kind of advice you would give to him if he's uh, on the fence of entering the draft. Yeah, if I was a team, I think it would be different than if I was someone in the outside looking in because, you know, it's difficult to know where teams are on him right now because he isn't really even talked about as a 2022 guy by a lot of draft media. Uh, ESPN doesn't even rank him, which is usually an indication that they believe he's going to return. Because um, there's no way that you wouldn't rank him if you thought he was going to be in the draft. I just can't possibly believe that. And uh, the thing is for me is that if I were drafting him, I would consider him a pre-draft prospect even in the late teens. I, I really believe that he could go lottery in a future draft if he'd added skills uh, or Agreed. developed what, what his current skill set. Um, I think that for me, I would say, you know, somebody is going to probably draft you in the first round. And, and it's not, maybe that wouldn't be the advice last year where it was a much deeper draft. You know, you look at JT Thor, who's not a similar player in play style, but um, similar circumstances where he didn't come in with draft pedigree and, and is being drafted mostly on skills. He went in the early second in that draft. If you're looking for a first round draft pick, it probably wouldn't have happened for John Butler last year. 
But this year, in a weaker draft, where you get to a point where you're drafting role players, probably in the late first round, why why not take a shot on this guy? Uh, why not just trust your development staff if you if you've got a development staff that you believe in? Why not ha- let them work with this guy when he's basically um, really kind of a blank canvas as a big where you don't know where the where the next steps are going to take him. And I think from a prospect's point of view, uh, for the most part, it's about avoiding being on a two-way contract, especially when you're the the caliber of prospect that he is. Uh, and it's about getting that guarantee to um, have a team invest time. Uh, like, Of course, the money matters uh, to some degree, but uh, investing the time in your development. Because for someone like John Butler, uh, and this is talked about quite, uh, quite a bit on uh, Twitter, where uh, he's not necessarily uh, incapable of playing spot minutes, some people think, uh, in his first year, maybe second season. And uh, so, yeah, you need that kind of guarantee where uh, you're going to be given the time to develop and flourish and actually uh, show what you're worth. And I think this is a really interesting point I was thinking of writing about in the future, but I just want to talk about it because uh, I saw a little conversation and it was to do with John Butler. And I think it was between um, Stephen from No Ceilings and Stone Hansen. And they were talking about um, John Butler, Butler not being able to play spot minutes. And Stephen's point was, uh, I don't really want to draft him too high or like prioritize him that much if he's going to be so far away. Stone was like, nope, you've got to get him in. You've got to, uh, you know, put the time into develop. We shouldn't have these expectations uh, that players need to contribute in their first few seasons. And that made me think of something completely different, which was the idea of if you've got someone like John Butler and you know they're not going to be able to contribute uh, for the first few years of their career, uh, instead of drafting them, it could be the idea of uh, prioritizing them as a potential future free agent and not necessarily being there for the development years, but then uh, similar to in the draft, you don't always get the guy you want because someone else could pick them up uh, in free agency. You don't always get the guy because someone else could pick them up. A similar idea there. And I guess what I'm just trying to say is uh, maybe an interesting draft philosophy could be uh, skipping the players' development years, having another team develop them, and even though you had them highly ranked, looking at them as a potential future free agent. Almost kind of like the transfer market in college basketball right now, where you know team there are certain team coaches that are telling reporters in confidence that they're just not even going to target recruits this year, even though they're very high on them, because they just want, would rather get guys who are ready to jump into their system and have been in, been around in the college game for a while. For better yeah, or for and then, worse, I there think, are teams that do that in the NBA as well. Yeah, and then on top of that, um, whole like super senior thing also is pretty harmful to recruits. Like um, yeah. some of the, the guys here in New Zealand, which I work with, aren't quite getting the offers that they probably are, are warranting because uh, the transfer market and um, are still being on scholarships uh, for their fifth seasons and everything that's going to be a massive change it's already been a massive change for college ball to have um, this kind of extra class of players remaining in the college game for an extra year but on top of that um, it's going to be a crazy change when all those guys are finally over and out of the out of the college game we're back to a post-covid hopefully uh, situation where we're, we're back to recruiting guys uh, a full recruitment class and not relying on guys maybe coming up through junior college or elsewhere for a couple of years. 
Sure. I want to ask you both this question, just just very quickly on John Butler. Uh, just something I'm personally curious about: how much of his development, you know, you know, try not to project him too much into the NBA. How much of his development comes with adding on some weight to his frame? Like obviously, Garrett, you you talked about it. I mean, seven foot, you know, one sixty. That's not very. I mean, that's not very feasible in the NBA. For example, somebody like Trey Young is somebody who had weight concerns, and he's you know six foot like one seventy. So I mean, when you're talking about seven feet tall, you know, one sixty. I mean. There's obviously some concerns there. I mean, there's other prospects that we do that with, but like, I feel like he's kind of sort of an extreme case of it. So I'm just curious how much, how much of his progression and how much does his development tie in with, hey, you're going to have to put on some weight? Tim, you want to tackle this first? Yeah, yeah. So I think the way to look at that would be to think about how, what his realistic uh, role in the NBA will be. And for me, uh, offensively, that is someone who is uh, going to really thrive uh, as an off-ball shooter. And I think one way to maximize that is uh, using him as a screener, whether that's an on-ball screener or an off-ball screener who's then popping uh, to the corner or to the wings. And so I feel like adding weight is important to be able to like you don't necessarily have to be a massive guy uh to be an effective screener because uh, technique plays a big role in that but if he can uh, put on a bit of weight i think uh, he definitely becomes a lot more viable as a screener and there's a lot of value to that when you can uh produce off of it in different wa- ways rather than just uh setting other guys up and so you can create opportunities for yourself and then defensively uh if he, if he puts on a bit of weight, he's definitely going to be able to uh, thrive, um, attaining drives a lot more, especially from uh, bigger wings and uh, power forwards, which I think will be his primary defensive position. And uh, yeah, I think a, a lot of it comes down to, to those two aspects of his game. And I don't know if that necessarily um, means he'll be significantly uh, more valuable as a player if he puts on weight when doing those specific things. Uh, but it helps nonetheless. Yeah, I think um, it's very interesting that Jonathan Isaac also went to Florida State, albeit in very different circumstances where Jonathan Isaac looked good right away at Florida State, but he was still viewed as being a long-term guy because he uh, there were areas of his game that needed a lot of development, and he was a very skinny player as well. John Butler's on another level of skinniness. Uh, Jonathan Isaac was able to play pretty right away, and I just think John Butler really should not be in the court for injury risk at how skinny he is year one. Um, and I, I view John, uh, John Butler first as a defensive prospect with interesting offensive tools. We talked about the off-ball ability. We, he, he has put the ball on the floor a couple times, and it's looked interesting, but it's far away. Um, so when I'm looking at him first as a defensive prospect, adding weight is everything. Um, right now, his wingspan and, and size allows him to contain college players who are also similarly not fully athletically developed yet um and it, and it looks great but when he's trying to contain the nba size and guys can just rip through his length they can go right into his body yeah i, I think that he's a guy that you just uh need to ha- add weight to as soon as possible and it's going to be huge for him yeah i mean you pretty much got on the on on the point right there like on the button pretty much that's how i feel like I, I try, and whenever I'm like watching these prospects, I try not to pay too much attention towards like a guy's like you know measurables, you know, especially when it comes to weight, because you know in the NBA when you put these guys with nutritionists and you know NBA level stuff like that, like these guys are gonna put on weight. Like we've seen this time and time again. We've seen it with Jaden McDaniels who was too skinny. We've seen it with uh, Pokusevski to an extent. So I always just think that that's something interesting. But like John Butler is a 
is one of those guys who is just like a very much an extreme case with it. Like obviously the potential's there, the talent is there. I mean, the size is definitely there. We know that for a fact. But it's like, are you going to be able to put on the size, or are you just going to be like a seven foot one seventy guy who's who's just kind of playing like a wacky inflatable tube man on defense, like just in the pass lanes like that? Yeah, I just quickly I'll add. Uh, this is an ongoing discussion with guys like Chet and uh, Victor Wimbanyama is the length versus strength argument. And I think at the moment it's leaning a lot more towards length, not saying that strength isn't valuable at all, but uh, I don't think it is as valuable as what we necessarily think for certain uh, guys within roles. And uh, yeah, so I think that applies to John Butler. And uh, guys don't fall out of the league purely due to uh, a lack of uh, strength and, and uh, weight. So there are other reasons. And I think if you're going to say John Butler's falling out of the league purely due to his uh, weight, no, it will be because of other reasons. Yeah, for sure. The next player I want to talk about is uh, Harrison Ingram. There's there's actually a, like, a lot of like differing opinions on him. I've seen him as high as you know people's top 10, but I've also seen him as low as people, you know, into like the forties. So I'm very curious of where you guys are at with him. Yeah. Uh, Harrison Ingram is one of the smartest players in this draft. His, his knowledge of the game is just on a very high level. And, and when we talk about him, you can't ignore the athleticism in the conversation. Uh, not something that I think is going to be a, something that increases dramatically for him with another year of development, another year in the weight room. Uh, I, I think he, he is inherently an athletically limited player, and he's an, inherently an incredibly intelligent player. So when you're talking about him as a pre-draft prospect, you kind of already know what you're getting a little bit when he goes to the next level. But the difference for me is that uh, why he could verge onto that pre-draft label is because his shooting splits were very poor this year, or at least maybe not very poor, but they, they lean towards the direction where it's kind of missing expectations. Um, his he, he looked a little bit labored on his three-point shot that maybe adding more strength will help his shot a bit. Give it, maybe getting a little bit more lift on his shot will help. And uh, going to the rim, he seemed to struggle a little bit with going at kind of traditional post bigs. In the well, Pac-12 doesn't have a ton of traditional post bigs, but, you know, kind of college bigs that are just kind of standing in the paint. He had a little bit of trouble going uh, right at them and, and finishing uh, not only because of his athleticism, but because uh, it seemed like he was just still figuring things out. So I, I do think he's on the edge of being a pre-draft prospect, um, particularly if you think that he could return kind of mid-first value, maybe be a top 10, 15 player in this class. Um, if you have that high of expectations for him, then certainly getting him in the second round would be a pre-draft. Tim, I think you're a bit of a fan of Harrison Ingram. What do you think about him? Yeah, I've been super up and down on him, but I'm back kind of on the, the up end of that. Uh, not crazy, but he's 23rd, and I, I really like his floor. And uh, for him, I think at the end of the day, when you're thinking about him in a pre-draft sense, is uh, not necessarily like this. This is more of a, a debate of uh, the philosophy of pre-drafting, and it's whether... Will he actually viably be able to uh, increase his draft stock that much next season? Like, what will he be doing so different that will maybe push him into lottery consideration compared to what he's done uh, this season? Because that's the difference of um, 
improving his draft stock and then kind of what you referred to, which was uh, uh, producing in the NBA and of warranting uh, his pre-draft position due to that. And yeah, I think, what do you think he um do differently next season to really elevate his stock? Yeah, I think maybe playing if Stanford's better next year, that right away helps his stock just by getting more attention to that squad and, and putting him in less of a position where when he creates, he has to do everything. Um, you know, they basically had him running point guard, but also, but then guarding in the post, guarding on the perimeter. They had him throwing him into this incredibly high usage role. I don't think that's necessarily a negative for him, but having better plays around him where he doesn't have to do it when it comes down to clutch time would really help his stock and make him look more comfortable in his role. Um, I, I think that could help him a bit. I think uh, his shooting splits coming around better to be more uh, to where we were possibly hoping they would be would help his stock as well. But yeah, when we talk about pre-drafting, I do think he's a guy that people will probably have kind of some set beliefs on coming into next year if he were to return to school. Uh, and I, maybe he doesn't move as much as some of these other guys that we're talking about where people are just kind of dismissing them because of athletic limitations at this point in their development or um, kind of like latent skill development versus obvious sk translatable skills right away. Um, I think Harrison Ingram's more of a case of a guy where maybe people are t too low on him versus got a guy that uh, people are not investing in yet. And so maybe he doesn't fit that pre-draft label to a T. I think an interesting comparison of prospects in this class uh, in terms of pre-draft guys is Harrison Ingram and uh, Quavion Smith. Uh, in terms of what makes them um, a pre-draft guy who could potentially blow up next season, because for someone like Turk, uh, a lot of it comes down to his athletic ability and then uh, his wild um, shot making. And I feel like those are two areas where Harrison Ingram just doesn't have. But what Harrison Ingram has, which Turk will need to add to his game, is uh, that kind of uh, basketball IQ and uh, what I call like role player qualities, which I think is super valuable. And so uh, for Turk to explode his draft stock next season, a lot of it is adding that kind of stuff. Whereas for Harrison Ingram, he doesn't necessarily have the athletic capabilities um to be able to imp improve upon uh, drastically, which could impact other parts of his game. And I feel that makes them two very different pre-draft uh, prospects. Yeah, I think actually your statement kind of goes right into the pre-draft idea, is that it, from my perspective, I think his decision-making, Turk we're talking about, his decision-making is already at a high level, and that he's his bad decisions are mostly a, a, a function of NC State being a little bit dysfunctional offensively. Um, so for me, I, I, when I'm pre-drafting, I hear that kind of uh, attitude. I, I think, oh, I have this different idea of this prospect that I'm ready to invest in right away versus other teams uh, who maybe want to see him have a little bit more development in that area before they're confident with him. I think that goes right into that pre-draft mindset of why, if I was a GM, I would be telling him to stay in the draft. Uh, versus yeah. Him. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I think that might be the best way to define what pre-drafting is, is uh, this difference in confidence and projection and uh, really just taking a, a risk on that. And it um, almost exclusively applies to these uh, younger guys who we can, I guess, project development for um, with, uh, I guess, more confidence. All right, it's time. I've been waiting for this. <laughs> 
this is where I come in. You know, I've been kind of quiet this episode. It's time. Look, speaking of pre-drafting, none other than, you know what? I'm not going to call him the nickname just because it kind of fizzled out towards the end. But uh, Caleb Love. I call him it. Call him it. Mar- Mr. March, come on now. Um, look, it didn't end like how we were. We were this close to greatness. Maybe, maybe you know, uh, me and the Caleb fans, you know, we almost had it. Look, I'm just saying now, with all due respect, and you know, this is when the podcast gets a bit wild. So I just want to say thank you to you guys. I, I, if I'm pre-drafting a guy, I'm taking Caleb Love in the twenties. Yeah, that's wild to me. The yeah, size, I need to hear your the shooting. He's like six foot three, and I I genuinely think he's gonna be like over thirty seven percent from three shooting in the NBA. Now, admittedly, there is some flaws. He he is a bit of a chucker, but I I don't I think he can go from being a chucker to a volume shooter. Now that it, now he's not gonna be efficient. We're not, I mean he's not gonna if you're here to like take a guy who's in like the fifty forty ninety club. No, that's not what Caleb Love is. You're you're taking him to be the off the bench spark guy who's making who's the Jordan Pool almost. Is that fair? Like I don't know. I'm trying to think of a recent draft comparison. But look, Caleb Love in the full extent. Give me him in the twenties. You give me Caleb Love in the twenties. I guarantee you by the time he's twenty five, I'll I'll have I'll give you ninety percent of Lou Will. Yeah, I mean, if you're getting Lou Will, please draft him. But <laughs> for me, I think like the uh, the shooting has to be at least a little more efficient, and that's why he's a pre-draft guy. If you're willing to take him, I mean, twenties is probably then losing pre-draft de- label. But uh, if you're willing to draft him in the early second, for example, versus me, I'm still waiting to see him put together a full season of consistency. Uh, that's certainly a pre-draft guy. I, I, I can't, I can't see him in the twenties for myself personally. But uh, hey, if he shot forty percent from three in college next year, then sure, he's probably gonna be a lot higher than he was this year. He, you know, some people had him in this early second, early in the year when he started off really hot, and then his because numbers kind of fell back down to where, not to where they were last year, but closer. Thing with Caleb Love, uh, for me, he currently sits outside my top 60, uh, but when he was shooting it a, a lot more efficiently earlier in the season, I was considering him in that in that early second, and I was quite excited about it, and part of that was uh, overcorrecting, but kind of admitting how wrong I was about someone like Emmanuel Quickly uh, as a combo guard who can uh, really shoot the rock off the ball. And uh, yeah, that's kind of similar to how I view Ty Ty Washington. I feel like him and Caleb Love uh, are in the same vein. And then with someone like Caleb Love, though, uh, the difference between how I'm ranking him and how you're ranking him, Jackson, uh, is pretty different. But I feel like uh, uh, a projection of him, of what he will look like in the NBA, is pretty similar. It's just I don't necessarily see that as uh, valuable or something that I'd want on my team compared to these other sort of uh, shooting-based archetypes, which I feel like you can uh, grab in the late second. Look, now, look, if I was giving advice to Caleb Love, first of all, I just want to say this. Go back to college. We have unfinished business in the tournament. If he wins the national championship, I'm pound, I'm coming on this podcast. I'm saying I'm taking him lottery. You you got you got lucky that didn't happen. Here's the thing: the pitch six foot three. The shooting is there. He he obviously has good touch. You can tell. I'm doing the three throw and the three point numbers. He just needs to improve on like the like 
fundamentals of basketball part, which admittedly doesn't sound good, but like, look, you start making a few a few shots from two point range, you start you know limiting the turnovers. We have something, and I just think there's enough now to take that, especially in a weaker draft class. Well, I'll say this: like, there are certain games where you watch Caleb Love play, and you're like, why don't you always play like this? Thanks. During, during the NCAA tournament, there were quite a few games where when he drove to the rim, he looked in control and paced, which in a stressful environment like the NCAA tournament was really surprising because there were other games where that did not have that high of stakes, where he looked rushed and uh, and forced when he would go to the rim, kind of like what we saw in his first year. So, you know, it, if, if you see those positive games and go, this is development, that he's moving towards doing this on a more consistent basis, yeah. You should probably be higher on him than uh, I think Tim and I, who probably both have him in similar, like out of the second, but close on the inside looking in range. Um, if if you see that and we don't, then certainly you're going to get a steal if he turns out that way and you got him in the second round. I've got a, I got a bit of a game to do with uh, Caleb Love here. And it, it's for you, Garrett, because Jackson's just going to, pick him every single time since he's uh, so high on him i've got a list here of uh, a bunch of kind of late second round guys on my board which might be similar to yours and i want you to say whether you would take caleb love off over them so uh the first guy is tyler burton oh that's close tyler burton is like a guy that's uh a plug-and-play role player right away but i don't really necessarily promote like project more than that I don't know. I would probably take Tyler Burton just because I really like some of the uh, off-ball skills he's probably going to bring, and he can he can space just like not at, maybe not at Caleb Love's level of Caleb Love hit, but he would be able to space. Okay. The next one is uh, Michael uh, Devoe. I would take Caleb Love here. That's what we uh, like to hear. <laughs> I, I started off as a. I, I I was hoping Devoe was going to have a breakout year this year. Georgia Tech ended up being rough. Sorry, Kev. That's one way uh, to put it. Yeah. Um, I think the fact that, I mean, he, I, I was actually compiling all the stats this year for the college season now that it's over and stats aren't going to change. And I, I noticed that Michael Goh didn't have a single dunk on the year. I, I, it just like, which kind of confirmed to me a little bit, kind of like the lack of athleticism in terms of like burstiness and, and, and getting to the rim. So if he's just purely a three-point shooter, I'd rather take Caleb Love and hope that he turns into more than that. Okay, I got two more. Uh, so the next one would be Hyung Jung Lee. Oh my gosh! Oh, well, now I'm just gonna slander Hyung Jung Lee. I I don't I think Hyung Jung Lee <laughs> should go back to school. Uh, yeah, I would just take Caleb Love over him. Um, That's what we like to hear. I I, I, I don't know the role for Hyung Jung Lee right now, other than shooting, and I'm not sure that a team would want to play him right now just for shooting. And the last one, who is my highest ranked of all these guys, is uh, Tevin Brown. No, I'm taking Tevin Brown, and I, 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 I it's just the easiest one. Well, we we were just sharing our boards earlier, and and Tevin Brown for me is significantly higher. I I think that Tevin Brown, uh, he he's going to be the next guy from a small conference school who becomes not only just a th- who who comes in known as a three point specialist who can do a little bit more than that. Um, I, I would personally love to have Tevin Brown on my team, and uh, he's almost in the range where I'd give a guaranteed contract, maybe just outside that where I would look for a two-way. But 
almost there for me. Yeah. I guess the point of pointing out all those guys is uh, what Caleb Love provides to me is something uh, pretty common, especially um, considering a lot of those guys are either, even if they may be some of them slightly worse uh, as overall shooters, either uh, provide more size or defensive coverage, uh, you know, and uh, I, th I think that in the late seconds, um, it makes it a bit more complicated uh, if you're looking at a guy like Caleb Love when there's uh, so many multifaceted options who can provide in similar ways. Do you guys think there's an argument for Caleb Love over Ty Ty Washington, or should I stop? I'm going to say no. Okay, uh, you don't, I, we just won't get into that. Say no as well. <laughs> I'll just stop while I'm ahead, you know. <laughs> I was ready to do it, it though. It's, I'm an, just episode, it it's an episode uh, for in a year's time uh, after his next March performance. Yeah, and hopefully this time he doesn't go, you know, five for 24 in the championship and then we're back. We're cooking with grease. <laughs> hey, I'd love to see a Caleb Love uh, revenge campaign. Let's do it. Please, please. We need that. All right. That's all I have to say about Caleb Love, though. I was waiting for that. All, all pretty much all podcasts. So, you know, it might have got a bit <laughs> off the rails, but I needed that. That was good for my soul. I did want to ask you guys this. Uh, you know, before we start wrapping things up, we're about an hour and ten minutes since this recording. Uh, do you guys have anything else you want to talk about before we start, you know, outroing this and wrapping it up? Uh, not for me. I I'm excited possibly to put out my board soon. I've got about four prospects left to put out, uh, set left to watch, I, I should say. And uh, once I'm there, I'll probably have my pre-combine board and, pre and probably put it out around the time the decision deadline uh, passes. Tim, how about you? For me, uh, for me, uh, at the moment, yeah, it's just about kind of like finalizing a lot of those decisions on my big board. I feel like I'm still uh, a bit too far behind on film compared to where I wanted to be. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm already excited for the next draft class. We've we've had a lot of uh, those exhibition kind of events recently, and uh, those 2023 guys, a lot of them look exciting. So, uh, just currently really in the in the draft mood and. Uh, uh, trying to balance my personal life with my love for the draft and uh, the love for the draft is currently winning so as it always is for me i mean look <laughs> it's either the nagging wife or caleb love i know which one i'm choosing um anyways just want to say thank you to everyone for tuning in to episode two of the draft class dropouts podcast be sure to check out the description of this episode uh on whatever listening platform you're on you can find links to our twitter Garrett's Twitter and Tim's Twitter as well. My Twitter, you can follow us. I know we all tweet about the draft. We're all tweeting about stuff, especially as we ramp up in the prime scouting season. There'll probably be some combine numbers that we'll either, you know, be very surprised about or we'll say they're fake and lies. Anyways, just want to say thank you for listening to episode two of the Draft Class Dropouts podcast. We'll see you on the next one. As always, rate, rate five stars on whatever listening platform you are. First of all, do that. Um, and yeah, love you. Goodbye. <laughs>